This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. The next programme may contain material that is distressing and listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now then, what has been going on this week? Well, I've been on holiday, believe it or not. Me and my man went to Malta. Many because it was on the green list, so we knew it would involve less rigmarole with forms and tests and we wouldn't have to worry about being made to self-isolate when we got back. But actually, we were surprised with how much we liked it. We absolutely loved it. It's gorgeous. There's so much history and culture, fantastic food. And I was relieved to find that they're very accepting of gay people or should I say gay men, Um, we did research that online beforehand, but even so, it was great to experience it in real life. It was very encouraging, very heartening. Back home, since we got back, there's been more positive news in the field of LGBTQ plus visibility. The BBC announced that celeb baker John Waite will be taking part in this year's Strictly Come Dancing and that he's going to feature in the show's first all-male pairing. About time too. I have to say, I've met John a few times. I love him. I can't wait to see how he does. I actually loved watching Nicola Adams in the first all-female pairing last year, and I was gutted when she had to pull out because Katya, I think it was, her dance partner, tested positive for COVID. So let's hope John stays COVID-free and we see him in that final. In less positive news... Pride in London has been cancelled for the second year because of COVID, for the second year in a row. And there's been controversy around the suggestion that Manchester Pride may be changing the way it funds certain charities because of having lost money to COVID and possibly even cutting the amount it gives to these charities. Both incidents, both news stories have sparked a lot of debate around the role and purpose of the big pride events and festivals, especially when these have commercial sponsors and they make a profit. We had Peter Tatchell on the show a few weeks ago talking about Reclaim Pride, but I think maybe this is a subject we're going to have to go into in greater depth in the future. I will look forward to that. In the meantime, let's get on with today's show. As usual, Everyone's welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. And I am on at Matt Kane Writer. That's my personal handle. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. Please do get in touch however you do it and join in the discussion. Now, what have we got coming up on our show? First of all, my guests are going to be Sophie Ward. She is an actress who's probably best known for her role in Steven Spielberg's Young Sherlock Holmes, her long-running stint in the TV series Heartbeat, and her extensive and quite brilliant work in theatre. She's also a parent, a wife, and an active campaigner for LGBTQ plus rights. And she published her debut novel, Love and Other Thought Experiments, 
last year. I read it, I called it a dazzling feat of imagination and philosophical thought. I stand by that, it's brilliant. But if you don't believe me, believe the judges of the Booker Prize, who put it on their long list. Not bad for a first novel. Sophie and I are going to be joined by Mishti Ali. Although she's still a student at Cambridge University, as a freelance journalist, she's had bylines in Galdem, Metro, Cosmopolitan and Gay Times. Her writing ranges from questions of sexuality and social class to literature, government policy, race and religion. Outside of writing, she's passionate about fighting for women's rights and has been featured on national and regional radio and TV. Now, this is what we're going to be discussing. Firstly, as LGBTQ plus people, are we still affected by old-fashioned stereotypes? If so, what damage can these do? Secondly, are we entering a golden age for queer-themed TV shows, films, novels and theatre? And if so, what's behind this? Very excitingly, we're going to be joined by Russell T. Davis for that. Thirdly, in 2017, the passing of the so-called Alan Turing Law meant that many gay men who were unjustly convicted of crimes because of their sexuality were able to receive pardons. But do these pardons go far enough to make up for the harm caused? And finally, what do we make of the news that celeb baker John Waite is going to be competing in this year's Strictly, in the first all-male pairing? Are our panellists fans of the show and will they be watching? All that is coming up. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. I am thrilled to welcome today's panellists, Sophie Ward and Mishti Ali. How are you both today? Doing well, thank you. How are you? Good, yeah, I'm great, thank you. Nice and resting after my holiday. How's Sophie? Pretty great, thank you very much, Matt. Lovely to be here. Fantastic. So I'm going to be chatting, having a little chat to each of you in between our discussions, find out what you're up to. But let's dive straight into our first topic. We're going to be talking about stereotypes in the LGBTQ plus community. So this week, I don't know if you saw it, but a Spanish advert for Snickers ice cream was pulled after it was widely condemned for making fun of effeminate gay men. It shows a Spanish social media influencer in a cafe being outrageously camp and flamboyant and everybody around is looking at him embarrassedly and awkwardly. And he then takes a bite of a Snickers ice cream and becomes much more manly with a thick beard and a deep voice. And I watched it to see what all the fuss was about. And I have to say it's really offensive or I found it really offensive because the suggestion is very much that this person is to be laughed at before the transformation and that the transformation represents a big improvement. And I just can't believe that the ad got past so many execs and creatives. The fact that none of them thought there'd be a problem 
only shows, to me anyway, just how deep-rooted their homophobia must be. Anyway, it got me thinking about the stereotypes that still exist about us. This stereotype of gay men as screaming queens is one I very much grew up with, me personally, but it's just one of many our communities have to deal with. So, just how prevalent are these stereotypes today still? What damage can they do and what can we do to fight against them? So, what do you think, Sophie? Um, would you say that stereotyping and people's ideas about you and assumptions they may make have been, have they played a big part in your life? I definitely think that that's changed. So, I would say when I first came out, yeah, there was a, a huge problem um, and uh, there seemed to be this very fixed idea of what a lesbian was. I think it's probably an idea that was given to me as well when I grew up. There's sort of a very um, uh, sort of dungaree wearing, blah, blah, blah. I don't even want to repeat the whole thing because it's like then I'm feeding more into that stereotype by acknowledging it in a way. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, what you mean. But it was very uh, prevalent. And, um, uh, and th so there was that idea and also some of that was internalized like well then does that mean I'm not a lesbian because how can I be because that's not quite what I am although I do embrace all those things of course so um that when I first came out there was quite a lot of uh, huffing and puffing about um certain representations of femininity that would mean that, that probably I wasn't a lesbian or maybe I couldn't be that anymore I think uh, the spectator ran an article that said that I couldn't be an English rose anymore because an English rose wasn't a lesbian. I mean, not that I particularly minded. I didn't really need to be an English rose. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's another stereotype. Yes. And, uh, and, and when you're talking about... I haven't seen the Snickers ad, but um, I... It's quite jaw-dropping, I have to yeah, say. But it's also a sort of anti-men altogether yeah. like uh, like sort of feeding into the idea of what a man should be and I mean it's yeah, very yeah, repressive yeah. Uh, it's very surprising to me that anybody would want to associate I mean you remember the Yorkie bar ads in yeah, the, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the uh, trucks and things were in the I think it must be in the 80s it's like this idea that you were a real man and a Real men have your yeah eat your kids. It's just a manly. Yeah. Do you remember they used to have man-sized tissues? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Do I you mean... remember that, Misty? We need to. We're coming on to you in a minute, Joe. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent sure they don't still have them. It's like all these products that you get that is like a pink razor or a white razor, and the pink razors cost more, but they're the exact same razor. It's so hard, isn't it? So what Sophie was just saying, Mishti, about... So you know what you are attracted to, you know um, your sexual desires, but then you've got this... Oh, you've got this very separate thing, which is identity and who you are. And um, this is where the stereotyping comes in, isn't it? Did you have any conflict when you were understanding your desires as a bisexual queer woman, but you didn't know what that meant about who you were? I think definitely and this I like I noticed that as I started growing more comfortable within my sexuality I did start dressing slightly differently um like what you were saying about you know dungaree wearing mm. I am <laughs> distinctly less femme now I still have my femme days mm. but I do think that when I first you know came out um I felt as if I wasn't being perceived as queer and you know I wanted to celebrate that as a part of my identity and 
of course you can't visibly tell whether or not someone's going to be queer but it was still nice that, that people might be able to tell absolutely yeah well i mean you said that very generously but for some <laughs> of us in this conversation it's blatantly <laughs> obvious that we are um and actually that i mean that does um you know take the conversation down a slightly um different route but you know, the, the Spanish influencer in the advert is naturally effeminate and camp. And on his um, Instagram account that I've had a look at, he is being very flamboyant. That is who so he is. he's a known personality he already. He is a known oh, personality. Okay. The issue with the advert is that people are laughing at him and um, this Snickers bar improve, makes him better and gets rid of that, that side of him. Yes. And... Um, it was interesting what you've both said about embracing certain qualities of stereotypes mm -hmm. and the lesbian dungaree wearing butch thing. If I think of the equivalent for gay men, I certainly spent a long time resisting that. Mm. But then you get further down your journey and um, you can learn to embrace it. So you're embracing it now, Mishti, already. You're, you're younger than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I've, it's definitely something that I've been enjoying more whilst at university. I'm quite lucky to be in a place where, you know, queer identities are fairly commonplace. Um, and I've noticed that in terms, not just in terms of clothing, in terms of the way that I talk, the way that I carry myself. Uh, I do love a bit of man spreading on the tube every now and then. <laughs> um, even though my parents, if my mum saw me like that, you know, it's not ladylike. People don't do that. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's just quite empowering, I think. So there's actually, so just even by saying ladylike, and Sophie, you mentioned the way a man should behave, there's stereotypes about everything, aren't mm. there? So in if we look at the stereotypes about our community as LGBTQ mm. plus people, um, where do they come from? Do you think, is it because a few people who, the first few to become famous had elements of that and everybody assumed because there were so few, oh, they must all be like that? Or is it that thing of... It's a it's a truism, isn't it, that um, there's a grain of um, truth and accuracy in every stereotype. Mm. And that, what do I you don't think? know about that because we've come from such a repressed history that um, that certain characteristics I imagine that were more obviously transgressive and 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 I'd identified with uh, a certain sexuality um, were probably the ones that were then lumped together. Whereas people who passed or you know, were under the radar, their, their yeah. qualities and their other their other um, behaviours were, were not so identified and lumped in with that. So I imagine it's probably more about that, that just certain qualities in people who were uh, undeniably queer were the, were the things that identified them and therefore got associated with that. That's what I imagine. Um, and I completely agree. At the same time, um, this idea of there being a grain of truth in stereotypes. So some of the stereotypes um, that I hear the most are that gay men um, are sexually incontinent. We just all sleep around. And that lesbians jump from relationship to relationship. There are a couple of stereotypes. <laughs> and actually statistically gay men do have more sexual partners and we had rosie Wilby on the show a couple of weeks ago who wrote a brilliant book called the breakup monologues mm -hmm. and she was quoting a study in that saying that lesbians do have more part more relationships um so you know is there do you think there is it's about people extrapolating or do you think we are conditioned to behave a certain way because 
as you said, Sophie, at the beginning, you we hear all those stereotypes about mm. ourselves and they um, do they motivate our behaviour, do you think? Do you think, Mishti, you're more likely as a bisexual woman to um, have lots of lesbian, go straight into lesbian relationships and I don't know. No, I don't think that that actually holds true. Um, Because when you think about it, particularly with regards to, you know, the idea of playing around with gender identity and, you know, a man, a gay man supposedly being more effeminate or um, like a woman loving woman dressing slightly differently, wearing jeans as opposed to skirts. I mean part and parcel of queer identity is playing around with your gender identity and I think that once you've broken free of norms surrounding sexuality it's natural that you're going to start pushing those other boundaries so yes there is going to be some kind of crossover but I don't think it's some kind of self-fulfilling prophecy at all I mean I've heard a lot as a bisexual woman that I'm somehow greedy or that I'm you know going to be just generally more promiscuous and I mean for me, that doesn't hold true. And I'm, I'm sure for most bisexual people out there, we just need to continue freeing ourselves, I think. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you've mentioned something that I love, the idea that we as queer people have a freedom to break the rules and confound expectations anyway. Mm-hmm. So why should we start following rules <laughs> that um, other people are imposing us about us? Yes, I mean, we're only really just getting to a stage where we're ready to make our own decisions about who we are rather than just like oh well this is who you are so this is how you're going to behave and this is what you should do well yeah absolutely and um you know it's i think it's only relatively recently if you think about the course of human history that um gay lesbian has been an identity rather than something that you do Mm. and um i think we are still i wonder whether in 50 years time people might listen to Shows like this and think they were still working it out. What it yeah, meant. Definitely, I think they will be. They'll be all moved on to a whole different sort of idea, I think, by then, I hope. But then I say that and then so, sometimes I look back and think, gosh, are we still arguing about this? You I know, know, I know. I definitely think that about arguments. But um, in terms of identity and stereotyping, I've, I've seen um, famous gay men and lesbians Um, who do naturally conform to stereotypes a bit more, Mm. butch lesbians or very camp gay men in the public eye, Mm. actually get criticism from within our community, talking about, you know, you're saying that these arguments that we have, saying that they're pandered to stereotypes or they're propagating stereotypes or letting the side down. And um, I don't want to name any names because I imagine it must be very hard to be them. And there's particularly a lot of male chat show hosts and things over in entertainment Mm. who get um stick from other gays for um pandering to stereotypes and you know i just think well nobody's just and some kind of cartoon character everybody's a human being and multifaceted and do you know what i mean so yes those are people who who you're observing are just behaving according to who they are yes so how could they be criticized for just being who they are that's well except they are they are criticised and it seems... Um, it is an unfair criticism, obviously. Do you, in, in amongst, in the lesbian community, do you sometimes get um, butch shaming in the way that we have femme shaming amongst gay men or is it less prevalent, would you say? Well, as far as I understand it, and do correct me if I'm wrong with it, with the younger generation, Mishdi, but butchers have always been very popular in the lesbian community. <laughs> Good to hear it! <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would say that the same still holds true. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm of the TikTok generation and I'm seeing quite a lot of TikToks going around about both bisexual and lesbian femmes actually finding it quite difficult to find other femmes within the community when that, that might be their inclination. Um, I'm not sure why that might be actually. Mm.
we've talked about people in the public eye maybe conforming to certain stereotypes about us. But now that there's so many more lesbian, queer, bisexual, gay people visible and in the public eye, there's much better representation. There's much more diversity within that representation. And there's plenty of famous queer people who completely book stereotypes, whether that's Scottish comedian Larry Dean, model Cara Delevingne, sportsman Gareth Thomas. Do you think this helps um, overwhelm the stereotypes that are persisting, Sophie? I think it's a great it's great for a start that there are so many people that we can name in the public eye who are out and uh, that's what a progression that has been yeah and pretty recent um but uh, yeah so then you get to see that actually gay people are human beings who are all different kinds of people and obviously i think that 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 helps um but maybe there's a sort of comfort when you were saying about um reinforcing uh, particularly gay male hosts for instance um you know who have been in in the public eye for a long time much more accepted generally in our sort of family households you know share, doing saturday night light entertainment um so that's quite a comfortable thing i think for certainly for the british public i think we feel quite good about that and we like that we're that's okay that's acceptable and then maybe it's hard for people who are gay but aren't in that stereotype to be so popular maybe very interesting you've literally i was literally just going to ask that because um i i have um witnessed in my time you know a real progression from um homophobia just flat out universal practically to people celebrating it came first with people like lily savage polo grady and now mm. you do absolutely get i totally agree with you sophie people i the number of times straight women have said to me i love gays mm. um and that's brilliant because it's a massive improvement on what we had but you're rightly pulling a face and um, the reason is because they, they can only say that if they're assuming that we're all a certain way. Mm. And for those who aren't, yeah. um, it must be really hard. I've, I've heard people say to very straight presenting gay men, if that's, I don't know whether that's the right turn of phrase, or people who buck stereotypes, oh, you're not really a proper gay, are you? Mm. You know, and like being disappointed. What do you think about this, Mishti? I really don't like it. I went, I think it was two weeks ago now, on my like my first gay night out, which was quite fun, you know, touring Soho with a couple of friends. And I think it was the Admiral Duncan that we were at. And one thing that we noticed was that there were hen parties yeah, frequenting yeah, yeah. this gay mm. pub. And all of us felt quite uncomfortable about it. Like this, yes, it's completely fine to have, you know, allies coming in, enjoying themselves, especially when you're coming to, you know, support a queer friend. But taking that space and using it um, just as, you know, we're going to enjoy it for one night. That's the safe space for a marginalised community. And you're encroaching on that space for your own enjoyment. You know, we aren't circus animals. No, absolutely. I completely agree. And we've actually, this is, this thing has come up, this topic has come up a few times on this show. But actually, in the, in the context of this discussion, they would be attracted to gay bells because they would expect to meet a certain type of gay that mm. presumably gays are all great at dancing and they're really good fun and um you can talk to them about your boyfriends and won't be judged and do you know what i mean you're nodding mishta i am have yeah. you heard straight cis women say this kind of thing 
yeah, I mean, I've been questioned on my bisexuality before um, by not just, you know, cishet women, but cishet men too. It's like, oh, how can you if you've not done X, Y, Z, um, like the one that I just mentioned, you know, queer milestones, supposedly. But is there any real such thing as, you know, a queer milestone or a queer lifestyle? How can we actually say that when people come from all different walks of life and all different identities? Um, absolutely. I completely agree. I was going to, I want to ask Sophie, you know, you said um, there's a certain familiarity with some of the stereotypes and I absolutely agree. But at the same time, do you think when there are queer people who book the stereotypes, um, for example, um, a gay man who plays sport and a gay man who's not promiscuous but gets married and has a respectable life and a family, family do you think... Um, sometimes the nice respectable gays and queers are more palatable to mainstream society and uh, with less of a point of difference mm. um i know that difference there's a fine line between difference and stereotype yeah but um do you think there's possibly a problem here well i mean it's interesting isn't it because uh i was part of the movement to promote um the legalization of gay marriage and um Obviously, within that, uh, there, were, there were quite a few people in the queer community who were who weren't sure about it because of it being a, such a, a heterosexual institution and a part of the patriarchy and all those reasons why you might have objections to that, um, which I completely understand. And then there is an idea that oh no, we're just going to be conforming to this uh, stereo, not well to to this behaviour that's uh, traditional behaviour, and we're not going to be our own people, and we're not going to have our own society and what we want, um, which is is completely understandable. But at the same time, you can I think well, I, I like the idea of queering marriage and of you know yeah. making your own own traditions within that, and um, and also if you want to embrace a tradition, that's that's fine if you want to be part of that you know for myself it was very important because all my ideas of um love and commitment and uh you know I, I wanted to be part of that love actually generation too and not just uh um not have to be on the outside looking in from that um but but at the same time there is this conformity thing so I don't know I don't want to be uh just saying oh we've got to be palatable as you say obviously um we're not we're different and um you know some people might want that quiet quiet life that's not my idea of my marriage but um, <laughs> <laughs> and not the one that i'm going to enter later in the year i see it as being a radical queer Absolutely. thing rather than yeah conformity yeah. but some people um you do get the idea certainly in the gay male world the good gays and the bad gays the good nice respectable ones who get married and behave themselves and then the ones who go out and get wasted and sleep around the kind of bad ones and we should hold them <laughs> back from um mainstream society in case it gives us a bad rep heteronormativity what does that mean to you mister um well what you were saying about the idea of you know having good gays and bad gays one i think it was jason akandai who wrote on his um instagram story recently um in response to this idea that you know it was mainly black trans people who fought for rights which yes yeah, they yeah. had a huge part in fighting for those rights but he also noted that a lot of the initial fight um for you know the, the initial no, LGBTQ movement 
did come from people separating themselves into respectable gays and the others they were like okay well we aren't like the rest we aren't screaming queens as you put it um and therefore you can you can trust us you can trust us to be well behaved Mm. and get those rights and i do think that that's still a pattern that we're seeing now particularly with what you're saying um in terms of people kind of you know not conforming to gender stereotypes and i think particularly in the uk we're still seeing that with regards to in particular um trans rights there are plenty of people within the community who are like okay well now that's pushing it too far Mm. but why are we not pushing those boundaries that's what our history has always been Mm. and that's what we should aim for it to continue being oh absolutely Mm. and even though i said earlier it's such an improvement when people say i love gays compared to what i grew up with um there's such a downside to positive stereotyping isn't there there's like you know the whole thing i love gays they're such good fun all right, that's nice on one level, but it doesn't necessarily lead to respect. And it's about keeping you in your lane if you step out of that lane. I remember when I was the arts correspondent on Channel 4 News, I used to see tweets and they'd say things like, who is this camp comedian? I can't take him seriously. And I used to think, uh, oh, they'd say he belongs on Strictly Come Dancing or some light entertainment show. And I used to think, right, well, if you were to give my script to a straight person in a suit, um, and have exactly the same report, there would be no problem for this person putting that tweet out. But actually, it is about, if you have a stereotype that gay men are all fun and like relief, mm. then it's hard for us to be taken seriously. There was, we, we, had, we quoted a study last week, I can't remember where it came from, where um, it said that gay men earn less than their straight counterparts in the same jobs. And um, the suggestion was that people love us, but they don't particularly want us in positions of authority, Mm. gravitas. Mm. What do you think, Sophie? Have you you ever been encouraged to stay in your lane? Uh, Well, I was certainly encouraged not to come out. I mean, you know, that was that was like considered not not to be a good plan at all. Um, In terms of uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, in my uh, day job as an actor, it's um, not. It wasn't an easy thing, and I think probably still isn't an easy thing. I know we're going to be talking later about um, representations in the media. Uh, I mean, in uh, film and television and fictional representations. But, yeah, I think stay in my lane, for sure. Definitely been encouraged to do that. Yeah. How about you, Mishti? You're just at the start of your career. Are you going to stay in your lane? Well, actually, what is your lane? (laughs) How do you see your lane? Honestly, I don't see my lane as being anything in particular. And I think for me, that's shaped by my experiences, not just as a queer woman, but also as a woman of colour. I think that once all of these different expectations are being pushed on you, you know, I'm I'm being framed as aggressive. I'm told that I'm intimidating when people have just met me. Once you've kind of grown up hearing those, even before you've come out simply because of the way that you appear, you tend to disregard them. It's like water off a duck's back. Mm. So I think that, yeah, it's slightly different for me. Good for although, you. Although, Thank absolutely you. good for you. Although saying that you're not even aware of having a lane and you're, or you don't feel as much pressure to stay in your lane, um, that suggests, doesn't it, that stereotyping is, despite this Snickers, Spanish Snickers advert, becoming less um, prevalent in our society. Um. I don't think so. I think it's just that people are learning how to deal with those stereotypes. Oh. And 
in some corners they are actually being reinforced i think more than before there is definitely a backlash to reform but at the same time we do have willing allies we do have people who are willing to stick their necks out for us and that makes a huge difference having somebody in your corner what do you think sophie do you think do you feel um positive are things going to get better or are we going to get better as mishti says at dealing with them well, um, definitely people have, people, I wish people didn't have to get better at dealing with it. I know, that's the best we can hope for. It's really awful. And I think until about five years ago, um, I was feeling very positive and then everything seemed to slide back so much in the last five years. Um, so obviously we all, we all know that we can't ever be complacent, even when you, as soon as you gain one right or a law changes, yeah. um, it's like, well, we're gonna have to really hold on to that and fight for it. And we, we, we're used to those battles, but um, yeah, I, I, I am a naturally positive person. <laughs> so, um, and, and we've got lovely Mishti here, who's, I, I feel like, you know, the future. So, oh, thank good. You. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm also naturally positive and I'm also holding holding on to the hope that Mishti represents. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. <laughs> You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I'm Matt Kane. This is my Sunday roast and I'm now going to be chatting to my fantastic panellist, Sophie Ward. I've got to ask you the first question you just said. You just slipped into the conversation very casually. You were encouraged not to come out. I can't say that's very surprising. Mm. But did you just not consider that where you just always hell bent on being open and positive mm. well yes absolutely I wanted to be open and positive but I mean I, I there wasn't uh so there's lots of reasons for that one is just representation and um knowing that there was in even in the 90s which doesn't feel that very long ago to me but I'm not even gonna look at my fellow <laughs> panelists uh, and um so uh yeah then there there was um a lot of a lot of pressure and um i i i, wa- I wanted to be positive and i felt very positive about it in myself and in my own being but also i just couldn't imagine the other thing mm. so when people say well you know was it a choice I, I, I there wasn't really a choice because what was that life i i couldn't imagine it i i understand that some people uh do that and and um uh, I don't even want to say closeted because that just seems so judgmental. And um, it's not about that because people make their decisions for the best reasons and whatever reasons they have um, are important to them. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I just couldn't imagine, well, for a start, I already had kids. So what was I going to say? We've, got, we've all got to lie constantly as a family. Um, we're not going to go out you were in Because you were in a relationship. Yes, I yeah, was yeah, in a relationship. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd met um, who, the, the woman who was to become my wife, um, Renee, and uh, she was their stepmom. And uh, we were a family. So how was that going to work? Um, just on a practical level. And then going out and being with friends and constantly being worried about... I don't understand how any of that can work for people. So there's that. I mean, I'm a very... Maybe I'm a bit simple in terms of how I want to live my life, but I certainly couldn't imagine the logistics of it. You know. Oh, well, actually, speaking about logistics, I remember an article you wrote, I think it was for The Guardian, where you said something about having to negotiate tactical necessities. Something about you and Renee being on a red carpet and thinking, <laughs> we need to have a photograph of ourselves taken together yes. so that there'll be less... Um, of a frenzy for the paps yeah. because they won't be able to make any money off yeah. a 
photograph. Yeah, that they at would the time get. they didn't have a picture of Renee and I together, so there was a lot of uh, us sort of being pursued. And um, so yeah, we were we went to this premiere thinking, well, everybody will be there. They'll get a picture, and it will be uh, very unimportant because there's lots of um, very much more famous people than us there. Um, and uh, yeah that was the plan <laughs> it didn't quite work out like that um but yeah it was it was yeah we, and we were so nervous and you know Renee and I hadn't been together for very long she'd only come over to England about six months before it's such a pressure on a new oh, relationship man. that kind of thing isn't it yeah <laughs> we were still getting to know each other and she didn't really understand about the English paparazzi and what all that was going to be like anyway so we just held hands with dear life and just walked through and just tried to <laughs> smile as much as we could but they, yeah that was scary and how about the career side of things let's talk mm. about the acting first because at this time in the 90s there was not the diversity well actually well correct me if i'm wrong i was going to say there weren't as good roles for women full stop but there certainly weren't lesbian queer roles in mm. the way that there is now mm. no no there weren't very many um and i, I well i know we're going to keep talking about this later yes. but I still don't think there are no. any either <laughs> um but uh yeah and I think there was an idea that um I would then not be able to play a straight woman as well that was uh. that was uh you know who's going to believe in that whereas there was never a problem with straight women playing lesbians or nobody said well we're not going to believe them no or somebody playing a murderer in a crime thriller if they've not killed somebody no you know well there are gradations aren't there Matt <laughs> I mean yeah <laughs> but do you know what I mean it's like what a weird um it depends on how good you are surely that should yeah. be the only that that should be that should be but it's not unfortunately it still isn't so um I, I think that that was an issue and then also you know you sort of put yourself into people categorize you and then there's this idea that you're foregrounding your personal life whereas in fact my thing is if I'd you know I had a husband nobody was like oh yeah. you're foregrounding your personal life when you're talking about your husband and you know if anybody does just happen to have a life then it's fine to talk about it whether you're gay or straight as right? if you're not entitled to have yes. a life and you know if you're happy to put your happiness out there Oh, yeah. Nice. Anyway, anyway, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Yes. I've got to ask you about your first novel, Love and Other Thought Experiments. It's amazing. I <laughs> absolutely loved it. Oh. And one of the things I was really impressed about it is it's so ambitious with the various narrative viewpoints and timelines. It starts off with this lesbian love story to be very reductive but um, then it kind of splinters off into so many different unexpected mm. directions did you not think I'm going to make myself make things easy for myself with the first <laughs> one and just write one simple narrative no I should have done shouldn't I Matt why didn't no, I talk to you no because it's first? brilliant it's brilliant what you did <laughs> thank you thank you yeah I don't I, I, I I'm not very good at that um not making life easy for myself uh, and I really enjoyed the, the the challenge of it but yes you can imagine I mean it, it took me about five years to write and there was the timeline thing like okay so that's happened on that timeline that's got to happen on that and making that all work out and um, uh, but I uh, yeah it, I like a puzzle so I just uh, I, I kept going and uh, uh, in, in it's, it came together in the end and it came together brilliantly Thanks. your first book you were long listed for the Booker Prize <laughs> yeah you must be thrilled with how well it was received. Yeah, I was. I was. And really surprised um, because, as you say, it isn't uh, an easily categorizable 
book and I still don't have a an elevator pitch as they say for it um so uh there were quite a lot of people that were like well where's that going to go in the bookshop and there was sort of you know problems about whether whether anybody would buy it. I didn't know if anyone would and then um yeah it did well so well and also um actresses are often encouraged to stay in their lane <laughs> and not um branch yeah. off in other directions did yeah. anybody say oh Maybe it's not a good idea to write a book. Well, I think I probably got that impression. People didn't say it to my face, but I, it, it's not—it's not a particular advantage, um, I don't think, for people to—you know—you're branching out into something else. You've—you've you've got to prove yourself already, yeah. all over again, yeah. and you're—you're you're starting from scratch, aren't you? All right. Very quickly, last question. You've got to write another. Do you have any plans to write another book? I do. It's, it's uh, coming out in May next year. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So this one isn't going to take five years. Oh, it has taken oh. five years. <laughs> I've just done them. I've, I've overlapped them. But yes, so I had, you know, two years after the book, after I'd finished the last book, before it came out. So by the time, yeah, it was, it did work out as another five years and it's still not straightforward. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I will look forward to another puzzle May next year. <laughs> Thanks, Sophie, Matt. thank you very thank much. You. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panellists, Sophie Ward and Mishti Ali are still here with me. And now we're going to be talking about queer-themed films, TV shows, plays and novels. So many of us grew up seeing our lives hardly ever represented in the mainstream narrative arts, as we've already touched on so far in this show. There's been lots more representation over the last 20 years, and even something of an explosion during the last five years or so. Whether it's TV shows like Pose, Gentleman Jack, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood, novels like The Heart's Invisible, Furies by John Boyne, or Days Without End by Sebastian Barry, or films like Carol, The Imitation Game, Moonlight, The Favourite, Call Me By Your Name, lots of them. And many of these are winning awards, generating conversations, attracting big audiences. So are we at the start of a golden age for LGBTQ plus characters and themes in the narrative arts. I'm delighted that we are now joined by an absolute legend and inspiration, TV screenwriter Russell T Davis. He created the game-changing Queer as Folk, resurrected Doctor Who, won a heap of awards for A Very English Scandal, and most recently attracted Channel 4's biggest ratings for years and years with It's a Sin. Russell, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Hello, darling. Hello, everyone in the studio. Hi there. Hi. Hiya. We're very excited you're here. You can tell I'm very excitable anyway, but particularly so now. <laughs> yes. So tell us, Russell, what? you have been pushing the envelope with gay characters, gay themed stories on TV for a while now, but you've just had one of your biggest successes. Have you noticed in the wake of It's a Sin less resistance from commissioning editors, more of an appetite for audiences for gay themed stories? Well, it's got to be said, I've never met resistance from commissioning editors. Never. Oh. You could argue that I don't get to go into the offices of the commissioning editors who would be resistant to me. I <laughs> <laughs> don't exist. So, you know, I've, I've got a magic filter on everything I see. I mean, there was one commissioner who turned down It's a Sin by calling it that miserable age drama. Oh. <laughs> I hope this person... 
I hope this person is ruining the day and um, feel hanging their head in shame now. Possibly slightly, it has to be said. But, you know, I know you've been talking earlier on the show, you know, and I'm 58 years old and I come from that age when I was 18 in 1981 and leaving home. We had three channels. By heck, we were poor then. But, like, you know, what we're talking about now, you know, is this a golden age? It's, it's, this is nirvana compared to what we had when I was 18. This, is, we, this was undreamt of. You never could have imagined this wealth of material. Yes, of course it's got further to go. And yes, of course, it's always in danger. I do think that, I think one of my rules is that revolutions have to keep on happening. That's why I just keep writing the same drama every five years or so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ploughing a very narrow and lonely furrow, but my God, I'm ploughing it deep. <laughs> just keep going. Hey, I've got to ask you, right, so you said you didn't have resistance from commissioning editors. I get all that, but after Queer as Folk, there wasn't this nirvana that you're talking about now, this explosion. Um, there wasn't an explosion in every direction in books, plays, films, TV, after Queer as Folk. There was there you was plowing your... Very, but there, but there was, um, especially compared to the science before. It just took subtler forms. For example, you had uh, Sugar Rush and uh, America had the L word, you know, the, the, the lesbian versions of Queer as Folk uh, filled those spaces. A very significant thing happened, which is that my friend Tony Wood back then yes. was producing uh, Coronation Street. And he said, he literally said to me, I want Eileen's house to become like Hazel's house on Queer as Folk, Hazel from Queer as Folk. He wanted to be a house full of misfits and gay characters. And that is still true for 20 years, that's been the case. So he explicitly modeled that and cast uh, Anthony Cotton, of course, as Sean, you know, an out gay actor being an out gay character, which Let's not be, we're used to Sean Mann, we're used to it. Well, I don't think you ever get used to Anthony Cotton, but um, we, <laughs> you know, we take that for granted. Now, that was a revolution. And inevitably, whenever we talk about, there's a danger that we talk about films and television and drama and theatre, and we leave the soaps out. Yes, and oh, I know, absolutely, soap, absolutely. And you, I know you love your soap operas, but try any critic having this discussion or article in The Guardian, and it'll just skip the soap operas. Yeah. They are the heart of the schedule. They have the most viewers and they have, enormously valuable queer stories. They do, absolutely. And um, the queer storylines, they have romantic storylines, you know, mm. um, emotionally engaging lives. Right, I want to bring in um, my panel in a minute, but I'm just going to say about soaps is that one TV exec said to me, the thing is about soaps, that because they have so many characters, they can afford to take a risk with a lesbian on the street or the gay man who works behind the bar. Yeah, was, that, was that a few years ago, Matt? Now you've got yes. six gay men on Coronation Street. I know, six I know. Men. Enough of that. Can we have a woman in here, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's you know, plenty of lesbians in Corey. There's lo oh, there were the last time I watched it. But you see, the figures are truly extraordinary. Now. And very often you'll get people... I mean, I mean, Hollyoaks, good Lord, try and find me a straight person. Oh, I know, I know. It's fantastic. But you will very often get criticisms of television voiced by people who do not watch television. Yes, absolutely. Right. Our panellists do watch television. I want to ask Sophie Ward, this revolution, this nirvana, as um, Russell has called it, when you were growing up, um, you've already said you hardly saw any lesbians on TV. 
Did you ever imagine, and also when you started working as an actress, did you ever imagine we would get to this Nirvana moment? If indeed you see it as, <laughs> if indeed you agree with Russell and see it as a Nirvana moment. Well, I, I think, I think um, Russell was saying it was a relative Nirvana rather than necessarily the, the yeah. Nirvana that we want to get to. Um, and yeah, I... Um, of course, I didn't think that. I mean, I, I, I didn't imagine that we would be able to ha have any of these amazing storylines and um, all, all the fi different fictional representations that we have now. And uh, when we did um, Village Affair in, in the 90s, it was sort of seen as, as very subversive. And that was a Joanna Trollope Argus saga. Um, you know, nobody would bat an eye now at that. But there is still, I think, a great underrepresentation of uh, lesbians in particular. I would say on television, yeah. I don't, I don't see this. And and we're we're very good at doing. Um, there were some two beautiful costume dramas, lesbian costume dramas, that were up for BAFTAs uh, over Christmas. Um, and I think that's a sort of safe space for lesbians to be in in the past, in nice in a nice corset. Um, they're fantastic films, um, but still, I think we, you know, we've still got a way to go. How about you, Mishti? So you've grown up in this time of greater representation, the time that us oldies are all talking about the dark days. Um, what, do, what do you think when you hear about that? Do you think it's important for younger people like you to know about um, what came before what we've got now? Um, I think it is, but I have to say, even though I grew up in like this time that is different I didn't really notice that much of a difference maybe that's because of me coming out and the timing but actually the first you know queer drama that I ever watched was It's a Sin oh really <laughs> and I watched it for a piece that I was writing watched it all in one night and I remember being like really deeply moved because that was a history that beforehand I'd never really felt any connection to probably because I didn't feel allowed to feel a connection when you know you're trying to hide who you are as a person um, I think the most important thing that I've noticed is similar to what you were saying, Sophie, um, that there's not really, it's a, it's a step in the right direction, but I don't think that we've moved enough. I think that for me, um, I'd like to see more stories about queer people of colour um, and I want to see a bit more intersectionality because when you have both of those identities, when you come from a different culture, um, all of those things really change your experience mm. of queerness. You know, I want to see um, a Muslim hijabi um, who's grappling with her sexuality, trying to get to terms with her faith. I want to see those stories being shown because at the moment, people like, like myself don't really have places to look to mm. for that. No, I completely agree. What I, when you were talking about the Muslim hijabi, I was just thinking, um, I wanted to ask Russell, you know, to what extent was there less representation of queer people in the past because people didn't want to hear our stories? And I was actually wondering whether we're not seeing that now because people still aren't ready to see the Muslim the Muslim girl. In terms of a point of empathy, mainstream audiences still aren't ready for that. What do you think, Russell, to what extent did we not used to see our lives re reflected on screen because mainstream audiences just actively did not want to see them and this was a barrier when yeah. we were growing up? It's, it's a loop that you're caught in, though, of visibility. I mean, I have to say the Muslim uh, female character came out in EastEnders last night. Oh! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, really, you really got to watch a lot of television. There is a lot of stuff out there. See, I'm absolutely serious. There is more stuff than you think. And and unfortunately, you might not want to watch EastEnders. But, um, I love you know, EastEnders. 
but there will be writers on that team who work very hard to get that story pushed out there. Who'll be weeping at the thought that it's not seen. Um, you know, um, but you know, it's it's just a broadening vocabulary, isn't it? It's, it's like never mind gayness. You know, it, when I'm talking twenty years ago. 20 years ago, we could have argued saying, I wish there were more gay characters, I wish there were more lesbian characters. We wouldn't even have mentioned the word trans. We wouldn't even no. have said it. And I love the fact that we've seen, you know, Julie Hesmond-Hallis as, as a straight female character playing a trans person. And now we've reached an age where you wouldn't cast a non-trans person as a trans character. And that's, you know, we come on in leaps and bounds. That's an extraordinary advance. Well, that's a profound Absolutely. And to me, one of the greatest joys of the narrative arts is being able to put yourself in the head of a character from a very different background or sexuality or gender or <laughs> race or nationality to you and, you know. Um, and there will always be further to go. What I love about what's happening right now is, you know, the whole trans argument, the, 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 the fierce trans argument is... is I'm, I'm sad that it's happening, but I'm delighted that it's happening because it's verbal and it's loud and it's visible and it's getting heard and that will translate into dramas. And so every generation discovers a new battle. That's what I love. We wouldn't have thought of this 20 years ago and now it's happening. And who knows what battles there are to come. I get letters to me saying, why aren't asexuals being represented anywhere? And indeed that's very true. I have put a documentary on air about asexuals. I've done that on all four, but, um, you know, yeah, so I like the fact there's always new ground, always, because the human race just keeps we keep widening our vocabulary, widening our visibility, widening our challenges, and that's brilliant. Okay, fantastic. Right, Sophie, do you think, sticking with this idea of mainstream audiences in the past not wanting to hear our stories, to what extent do you think our stories were actively suppressed? If you think about big... Um, queer figures from the past, whether that's um, Tchaikovsky, Hans Christian Andersen, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, they usually destroyed all evidence of same-sex desires or activities. And consequently, this has allowed historians, anybody who would tell our story, to um, wipe their queerness from the record. And because people weren't ready to engage in it, and it kind of denied our existence, never mind the contribution that we made. Mm. What, so, what are you, what are you saying that you want? Do you think our Do you think it goes beyond mainstream audiences not wanting to hear our stories? Do you think it goes as far as our stories being actively? erased, suppressed, mm. snuffed out. Well, I mean, yeah, lots of marginalised stories have been suppressed and women's stories in general have, you know, been been written out and the, the contributions that they've made. But um, in terms of being queer, yes, I, I don't know that I would say that it was about the mainstream not wanting those stories. They probably didn't really even know about them, most people. But it wasn't... Um, may be acceptable in certain circles or a bit like only very few years ago if you if you that when i was advised not to come out yeah. you know that that that's so recent so if you're looking at the at long term history in terms of people being out i mean there were amazing people writing about their their great loves if you're looking at sonnets or you know yeah, they yeah. and and people dedicating their their um their piece, their music to to their lovers, and all kinds of things being done that were there. Of course, there were stories that have been ignored. Well, also, I mean, having said that, if you think about it, it's the same. When I was growing up in the eighties, when the AIDS crisis was raging, there was such hysteria around dirty gays spreading disease. I don't think It's the Same would have got record ratings. I think it would have bombed if you'd done it in those days, actually. Do you not think, Russell? 
Well, that's very true. Well, yes and no. You've got to consider that the great American writers like Tony Kushner and um, uh, what they were writing at the time it was great theatre pieces coming out. Mm. Um, you know, I know the Normal Heart is being revived at the National um, this month, and um, that's a ferocious piece of work. Um, so there yes. were expressions of this, and actually, you know, something like EastEnders was very. I, mean, I keep quoting the soaps, but that, that's because they're always left out of the argument, and they mm. have highest viewing figures. Um, yeah. Uh, that they, they, they introduced Colin in 1986, and they were playing with the they were playing with HIV stories around him sometimes. So people were trying. People were trying. There's a lot of gay people on those production teams who were trying, and I don't think there was a massive prejudice against. Them. I don't think there was a, a. I mean, I mean, the ignorance and the lack of a vocabulary becomes an institutional bias. But I don't think that you. Sometimes you frame this as evil plotters. Um, <laughs> Deliberately, deliberately scheming to eradicate us from history, um, and that's not invalid. But but actually, it's 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 it, it's a bit like a conspiracy theory, and most conspiracy theories are just explained by just a bit of idiocy, really. <laughs> and people wanted to go home by six o'clock instead of having to, <laughs> to have an argument with someone in the office. So um, there's a natural complacency, and when we're invisible, then that's very hard to argue. That's why I just always talk about it. Whenever I do an interview anywhere, I will shoehorn the fact that I'm gay into it. <laughs> Visibility, visibility, visibility is the key. But if also, you need somebody. You know, you, you need people like Russell who are writing those storylines. And 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 the same as Mishy was saying. You know, we we need people from intersectional communities and people of color who are also doing the writing. So, um, you, you you say that about it's a sin may not have been a success. But of course, watching it now, you can't imagine how it wouldn't have been a success. Know, I'm sure it would have been with Russell writing it. So it's it's about. Who was there at the time, and uh, as well, and obviously that's also to do with the support that they're getting. But you, you need you need those stories to come from them. So I want to bring about bring in some listener comments now. We've had Marcus on Instagram says, "Yes, it is a golden age, certainly in entertainment. There's never been an age full of so many successful music, drag, and entertainment stars as we have today." Dan on Twitter says. A smattering of queer-themed TV shows and inclusion of a few queer characters is hardly a golden age. My husband has nearly completed a series one script of a cross-culture LGBTQ plus series that addresses cultural prejudice, rape, homophobia, yet zero interest from production companies. Steve on Twitter says, perhaps a better way to look at it is the inclusion of LGBT characters and LGBT themes in programmes like I May Destroy You, such that they are noted, but don't really get mentioned or cause outrage so much. Right, Mishti, tell us, as well as lead characters and storylines on TV, film, novels, theatre, how important is this kind of incidental representation? Um, that Steve mentions, or is incidental doing it down? The fact that queer themes are woven in rather than necessarily being the central one. Um, I think it's important to note that different people take their identities um, and their queerness as part of that um, to different extents. I mean, for me, yes, I'm very out and proud about who I am, but at the same time, my race has always come before that, I guess, because of it's more visible and that's how people will approach me. And I think that's something that we need to see more often. Um, queer people in storylines that aren't centering around their queerness but I think the problem is at the moment that sometimes people can lean on that as a crutch it's oh yes well we are including queerness um but 
in interweaving it around a central storyline, I think it's making it slightly more palatable. And I don't think that we should pander to that. We shouldn't be doing up, you know, respectability politics when it comes to these these um shows. Um, absolutely. Right. So, Russell, what do you think in terms of the idea of including queer themes woven into a show? Is there any substitute for there being a leading empathy figure or the key driver to a narrative being queer, being one of us? Uh, is there any substitute? It, it can be whatever it wants. I think it's I think it's a I kind of think that's an appalling description of I May Destroy You, a phenomenal piece of work by a world standard, world record-breaking writer, Michaela Cole, who puts, try and dismiss that Papa Esiedu story there as as minimal, and you'll just fail. Go and watch it. It's a major spine of the entire series, a series which you talk about consent on every level. Women's consent to men, men's consent to men, male rape. It's an astonishing Oh, no, I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. I mean, just, no, seriously, it's like we're talking in here as though Michaela Cole, the most phenomenal writer in the world, paid a bit of lip service and put a gay story in. Go and watch it again. You see, that's why you've got to be strict about this. We're talking about human rights now, our rights, and that's why I won't allow rubbish statements to go past because this is important stuff. I spend my life on this stuff and I won't allow statements like that to fly past. Okay, you're brilliant. You're being much stricter than I am trying to include all these statements. Right, so what about, so forgetting about I May Destroy You, this idea of having queer themes being incidental or part of a bigger whole as opposed to the central thing. This is a queer drama. This is a gay central character who falls in love with another man or another woman. And this is who we are going to encourage the audience to empathise with. Which do you think is more powerful or do they, do they each have a role? They're both fine. I mean, both fine. It's like you can't, you can't say one or the other. Otherwise, otherwise it would be a very extreme world you were living in where all dramas would have to be straight or all dramas would have to be. Of course, we're all the subplot in someone else's life. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to be centre stage with everyone all the time, but we are all sometimes, yeah, we're not centre stage. And that's just a fact. (laughs) And the fact that I'm obviously a gay drama is going to be about gay themes. I am more happy when I see a cold feet type drama that has a gay sister in it or the lesbian neighbors or stuff like that. I like that. I, I get cross um, when that doesn't happen. I did, And I think there should be more of that because I do think, you know, when I say we're in a gay nirvana, I also think take the soaps aside and you could watch a whole stream of nine o'clock dramas without a single gay character cropping up. And that's when I get annoyed. It's like, okay, so you're a straight writer and you've written a straight character, but where? what about the two women next door? What about your gay mum? What about the gay brother? It, that's when I, I do think there's work to be done there. So I would, I'm not disappointed when I see gay subplots. I want to see more gay subplots. So we're woven into a picture of the world. Brilliant. Thank you. Right, Sophie, I have a theory that cishet audiences are now engaging in queer stories because they're often tales of some level of non-conformity, resisting expectations, rebelling against rules, and these stories can inspire straight people to do the same or give them the licence or inspiration to live a little more freely. (laughs) What do you think of that theory? (laughs) It's quite an irony there because... For, for queer people throughout history, we've always had to look through the straight gaze and then find who we are represented in that story and, and project ourselves in onto that person 
who who will be usually uh, traditionally has been a straight person and they think oh well i'm the i'm the hero in that even though they don't look like us and they're not us so i love this idea that uh that they're now looking. I mean, I always think, you know, every story is a lesbian story, basically. And, um, you know, every story is about nonconformity. I mean, it is. So, you know, that's how we've always read it. And then, and so that's fantastic. I'm, I'm really hoping we can liberate some straight people. And they'll, they'll, they'll be inspired by us. So, Mishti, how about you with your kind of friendship group, um, including, as I'm sure it does, um, cishet people, do, do you notice any barriers to engagement um, or do they view kind of um, queer stories any differently than they view any others? I don't think so. Um, from what I saw, you know, especially when shows get such good ratings and people hear, you know, people raving about it on social media, online, in media generally, um, they want to know what all the fuss is about. And they do end up really enjoying that. And I think that for most people, seeing into a world that is outside of your own doesn't necessarily alienate you. It's like what Sophie was saying. Um, we all have different experiences, but at the end of the day, it's still the human experience. And you are inevitably going to try and centre yourself within that. Brilliant. Um, Russell, you mentioned earlier... Um you mentioned it's something that made me think about your success giving you a certain power now in terms of um, being able to drive the conversation. Is that something that you've noticed growing over the last few years in particular? And do you feel, I know that you often have, uh, you, in, you've got a massive amount of ethnic diversity and even there's there was the disabled character in years and years. Do you feel a responsibility to um, push diversity on screen? I do, I absolutely do. Uh, lovely Ruth Makeley uh, was uh, in years and years. My favourite thing actually is Andrea Doherty, who was in uh, It's a Sin, the mother, Colin's mother, who is a wheelchair user. And I, I've done 5,000 interviews about It's a Sin. No one has ever mentioned the fact that she's in a wheelchair. And that's a breakthrough. With Ruth in years and years, that was talked about a lot as a lead role. Uh, she was sexually active. She had three children by three different men that, that, and, and with a disability. And that was and Ruth loved engaging in that argument. I found it to say even more fascinating because it had moved on. It, no one commented on it. And I love that. That's, that's when we're getting to some sort of tipping point. That's when we're getting an equality. And I'm thrilled by that. And yes, I, I, I actually, I have a kind of quota system. Yes, I believe in quota systems. I think if you leave quotas out, everyone, it's all just a white bunch of white people casting white people and a bunch of able-bodied people casting able-bodied people. So I literally do, I'm executing other people's scripts as well now, and I go through them saying, where's the where, where's the diversity? Where's the disabled character? And I, I make a point of it. If you don't do that, it doesn't happen. I'm loving seeing all your activism brimming over in this interview <laughs> and how strict you are and all that fighting oh, you. I I don't think it was activism. It's my job, that's all. And I know people, some people take the mickey out of my shows for doing it, but like, I care what they think. Um, you know, so yeah, I think, yes, I mean, a very, power is the right word. I do have, so it'd be disingenuous if I didn't admit to having a certain amount of power, but really the work to be done is within your own shows and not just me. I work with a brilliant casting director called Andy Pryor and we are passionate about it. Fantastic. Right, I want to ask Sophie. So Russell mentioned earlier, and I've heard this, um, from commissioning editors in all fields, the need to justify um, your appeal to a mainstream audience. Do you think there's a danger 
of relying too heavily on big audiences, big audiences to validate a queer-themed TV show or film. What I was going to say was, surely one that appeals solely to people within our community, community could be equally valid. Mishti's nodding. Tell us what you think first. Well, I think that in some ways we've been liberated from that model, haven't we? Because we've got so, all these different streaming services now and um, I don't think they necessarily look at only viewing figures and, and, and some of them don't even release their viewing figures and they don't have advertisers, they have subscribers and they also are interested in being creatively um, powerful. So um, getting good reviews and, you know, being prestigious, all of those things are also counting and also what sort of what they want to represent themselves you know who are they and what's their identity and and that's usually good drama and those good dramas are being written by all kinds of different people so i think in some ways we're luckily moving away from that just by the by the how our viewing is now being done what do you think mishti do you agree that um the streaming model has kind of liberated program makers if we're talking about telly in particular in the sense that there's less of a need to prove that you're going to attract a mainstream audience and therefore um, shows that may have been considered a bit more niche um, can get through? Um, I think that it's more that shows that might have been considered niche are being demonstrated not to be so. Um, before you'd have ads and things for TV shows and you'd go, oh, all right, maybe we'll, maybe we'll tune in for that. Whereas now I think it is does obviously advertising still happens um but i do believe that it revolves more on around kind of word of mouth mm. and maybe that's just something that i'm seeing within my own friendship groups maybe it's just because i'm in a bit of a bubble um but whenever i've watched a tv show it does tend to be because you know i've seen memes i've seen clips of it online i've seen my friends talking about it someone's recommended it to me rather than me necessarily going through a magazine and reading what a critic's written about it or something like that mm. That's what us dinosaurs do. You used to read magazines <laughs> to see what critics have written. Russell, you you have something to say. Well, I think I just think I think there's a great danger in looking to the streamers for the next Nirvana because um, Netflix is going through an interesting phase at the moment, a kind of soft porny phase in terms of games, <laughs> young royals and elite, and you know, which are very sexy shows, but but in the and they're very clearly attracting the the, the, the young gay audience, but the bigger these streamers get, the more they will eat each other up. They will conglomerate. We will end up with with two or three huge streamers, and they they need they literally need to financially succeed in China, where we are not remotely welcome, and that's where all these shows are heading. So it's, do we're you see do you see it um, the future being much more on the traditional model of television then, Russell? Yes, I think I think we have to defend our rights now. If uh, that's one of the reasons I'm happy saying, Sophie, that we're in a nirvana, is I think they come to an end, mm. and. I, size of broadcasting now I mean this television explosion is, is enormous it's in many ways it's a great time to be a writer but in 10 years when the big companies have swallowed it there will be financial collapses and your great big Disney's will become enormous and will consume other things it's like Channel 4 is about to be sold off who do you think yeah, yeah, yeah. Buy it? a nice little like little Bloomsbury set of gays no a great big conglomerate <laughs> Buy yeah. it. And then more and more that they need to fit a worldwide audience and the huge parts of the world that do not want queer stories on television. So, Russell, we've only got a couple of minutes left and I want to end on a note of positivity. Is there nothing that we can do to fight this frightening future that you're predicting? 
I mean, people are fighting. It, it's like, I mean, within those conglomerates, I've talked to people who are fighting, even within Disney. They're, they're, you've got your high school musical stuff um, in which there are gay characters. Um, so and you've got uh, that Love, Victor series. It's, it's, it's more of a cinema problem at the moment, but I'm worried that because the cinema is the big money spinner, that will drive all the industry. Yeah. But no, as long as there are people like us, like you, like like, like like within, there are always queer people within businesses working away, whether it's quietly or loudly, and they are brilliant and they get their stories told. Right. Brilliant. Thank you very much. But just before you go, I've got to know about what you're working on at the moment. Are you working on, please tell us you're writing another brilliant queer themed <laughs> series. It's going to be on telly soon. I, I, it'll be on ITV. It's not announced yet, so I can't say it'll be on ITV next year. It's, it's, it's rather camp. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> death and disaster. It's a proper old laugh for the next one. So, you know, I love fun. it already. You've said the word camp. I'm sold. Thank you. The future is safe in your hands. Thank you very much, Russell. Thank you. Thank you, you too, as well. Bye, Russell. Bye. Bye. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am Matt Cain, and now I'm going to be chatting to our fabulous panellist, Mishti Ali. So, Mishti, tell us, you must be incredibly busy balancing life as a student at Cambridge with your work as a journalist. How do you, how do, you do that? And how did you get out of the starting block so quickly? Um, well, it was completely accidental. Um, I've always been the kind of person to have a big gob. I <laughs> used to just kind of like tweet my opinions into the ether. And it just so happened that an editor followed me, saw one of these tweets and messaged me asking, you know, um, would you like to write a piece for us on this? I did. It did very well. I was very lucky. Um, and it's all just kind of gone from there. I've always loved writing. I mean, you kind of have to as an English student. <laughs> um, so it just felt, feels like a natural progression. But yeah, I'm very lucky. And in terms of your university life, you've written about Cambridge being a very white dominated institution. You, mm. You've already mentioned a few times your identity as a woman of colour. Do you think Oxbridge are worse than other universities for their levels of diversity and why do you think this is? Um, I do think so and I think that one of the problems within this is that we lean too much on certain um like terms like the like like BAME, um, it just kind of like clumps us all together. But then within that, you have groups that come from very different backgrounds. Um, the Runnymede Trust actually did a study called the Color of Money, and within that, they found that for every pound of wealth that a white British family has, ninety um, p of that will be owned by a British Indian family versus ten p um, for by which will be owned by a British Bangladeshi family, which I'm I am um, or a black African families so you see within like these different demographics even though we have commonalities class plays a huge factor into that um, and we can't just be doing tick boxes unfortunately. BAME is weird isn't it? It basically means non-white it's like othering everything that is non-white yeah. putting lumping everybody together so if you're saying that then does it if you look at the problem in Oxbridge does it all come down to wealth and actually um you know, predominantly wealthy people going and having sent their children to private schools in order to have the best chance of getting into our elite universities? Um, I don't think it's just private schools. Um, the thing is that, unfortunately, we do also see certain public sector schools having huge slices um, of, you know, <laughs> um, the incoming o um, Oxbridge cohort. 
And we need to make sure that that's something that's being spread out across schools. Um, there has been a trend that I noticed myself at sixth form of private school students being moved to a state sixth form so that they could then claim certain oh, really? privileges as a result. And I won't name names or anything, but I do know of people who have kind of gamed the system despite coming. And this is quite common at Oxbridge um, it's been joked about at parties and things with people going oh yeah we've all done a bit of that haven't we and I'm sat there going I've not done that <laughs> well can I just say so what so I went to Cambridge after going to state schools it's quite a long time ago now and that certainly didn't go on then but I remember it being a problem but actually you know what when I went to Cambridge it was for me it was something to be proud of it was a real achievement later in life I found that I have to kind of cover it up a bit because people lump Oxbridge in with um Eton Harrow and they just see it all as kind of white privilege and not seeing any of the other factors and actually it is possible to get in on merit even with all these other things that you're talking about going on it's quite a complicated picture though isn't it yeah um I mean obviously there are huge privileges that come along with going to such university even in terms of the way that you talk the way that you carry yourself um oh, well but... I don't talk like I, I mean I just talk like I did before and maybe my accent's been softened slightly well I mean I, I'm I'm code switching I'm from East London born and raised so if this was <laughs> if this was in my kitchen I'd be talking very differently <laughs> oh interesting so you know how to code switch yeah I mean my mum was the first person in her uni in her family to go Go to university um, and she went to LSE in the nine in the 80s sorry um, at a time when that wasn't a thing she only came to this country when she was nine um, and so she was very much you know of the opinion that I, I bettered myself in quotation marks um, and so I want my children to have the same kind of opportunities. Well actually tell me about your family because you've written about having to leave your family to become the person you're meant to be as a queer woman. Yeah. Um, what's your relationship like with them now? I've not spoken to my family since I was 18. I'm now 20. Um, yeah, I did run away from home not long after getting my A-level results um, to basically live life comfortably out of the closet. It was a lot more difficult at the start. I was homeless for a short period of time. I remember applying to university whilst homeless. That was interesting. <laughs> um, but I'm in a, I've been very lucky. I'm in a much different place. But it could have easily gone a different way. And I know that there are lots of queer people who have been in similar situations and haven't had those same opportunities. And was this about your sexuality or was, uh, sorry, was this about culture and your sexuality or was it also about religion? Because you've written again about um, having to, f trying to find a space within your faith community or the faith community you grew up in. Yeah, I do think that it's a combination of both. Um, I think my family were very religious and not just due to um, not just due to my sexuality, but that's not really something that I felt comfortable within. And I think that it's a conversation that within the community um, still very much needs to be addressed because there are people who are willing to excuse lots of things that are forbidden within the religion. But suddenly when it comes to sexuality, um, they're, <laughs> they're a religious fanatics suddenly. <laughs> So you, I mean, you're you're giggling as you say it, but there's obviously a real steeliness there and a fight within you. Do you consider yourself an activist? Has this all fueled you, motivated you to get out there and fight in your work, in your writing? 
Um, I don't think I would call myself an activist, actually. There are things that I care about, yes, um, but I would call myself a journalist first and foremost. And as part of that, I enjoy telling stories, stories of you know people who are underrepresented. Um, and if that constitutes activism, then I think that says more about the current climate than it does about me and my intent. Oh, interesting. Right. So in the future, when you eventually graduate from Cambridge with, I'm sure, a fantastic degree, um, what's the plan? Are you going to go full time into journalism broadcasting? I would love to. (laughs) I guess it depends on what the climate's like and who's willing to take me. I, but yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. There's lots of things that I'd like to do. I mean, sitting with two novelists is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'd kind of see where it takes me. All right. Well, not just fingers crossed, everything crossed for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Now, I'm going to talk about what we've got coming up, but just before I do, Sophie was very moved by what Mishti was just saying, and you want to come back, don't you, and make a little comment about it? Yeah, I was very moved, and I think... um, Sorry, Mishti. Um, I think people listening to that will be impacted by what you say. You know, obviously you're so brave, and I know that you're um, you're super intelligent and you're dealing with it, you know. Um, But this is a big deal, and this is still happening. Um present day to people to young people um especially in their families and you know we we need to find ways of being able to support people but also to understand and acknowledge that all the time that we think things are so great and they're getting better and everything there are still a lot of people who who um for, for whom they're actually being separated from their families so Mishti, you're incredibly brave and wonderful and um and i really respect you and uh, and i i'm sure that you're finding all all the support because you're um you're a very charming wonderful person but i just wanted to say um you know and i absolutely second that and i must say for anybody listening if anybody is struggling in a similar situation um you can contact akt formerly the albert kennedy trust the uk's national youth lgbtq plus homelessness charity which deals with an astonishing number of young homeless people who've been who's the principal factor for their homelessness is um, the sexuality or gender identity. Well, interesting as well, the next discussion we're going to do, we're going to have um, a much older queer person, a gay man who's possibly in his 70s, I think, who also who has a similar story of familial rejection in a completely different social context, um, which brings me on to the next topic, gay pardons. So, the new £50 note, I'm sure, sure lots of you know, it features a picture of World War II Enigma codebreaker Alan Turing. Many of us know that Turing didn't receive any kind of honour in the decade following the war. In fact, he was found guilty of gross indecency for gay sexual activity and subjected to chemical castration. In 1954, Turing was found dead from cyanide poisoning, with an inquest concluding that the cause of death was suicide. In 2013, he was given a royal pardon. Then in 2017, a new law was passed, informally named the Alan Turing Law, which offers a pardon to all gay men who were convicted of crimes which are no longer considered crimes. So, for our next topic, we're going to be discussing whether these pardons are enough or whether more needs to be done to make amends. I'd like to introduce at this point our next guest, Philip Harper Deakin, 
He himself was arrested and punished for his sexuality. Philip, thank you very much for joining us. Can you tell us a little summary of your story? Am I right in thinking you were prosecuted for gross indecency? Correct. In February 1972, I was caught in public toilet under the bloke. And you and you were found guilty of um, you were dragged out of the public toilets. Presumably, you were taken to court and found guilty. That's right. I received two years probation and twelve months psychiatric treatments as part of my um, offence. And did what did the psychiatric treatment involve? Um, electric shock treatments, primarily. And what was that like? What was that like to live through as a as oh. a young man? How old were you at the time? Seventeen. I think because I struggled for the first sixteen years of my life living in a hostile environment of who I was, and I refused to change. Um, it was just another part of punishment. So I could, I mean, I handled all of that through sixteen years. I left home. Um, the electric shock treatment was just another form of just get on with it, basically. Um, after the treatment, when I go cottaging, I mean, it lasted four months. I mean, I told my probation officer what I was, what I was doing it was having no effects. I was quite happy who I was and what I was. I wasn't going to change. And he managed to get that part of the, um, the sentencing quashed. It's amazing that um, you hear so many stories of internalised shame and feeling that you're wrong and people feeling that they're wrong and dirty. It's amazing that you continued to feel um you know that sense of identity and who you were and refusing to try and change that well i knew from a very early age i was different um and i just didn't fit in with the you know working class background um with my parents and my brother and i refused to change i couldn't i couldn't justify why i should change Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. But the, could you tell us, how did the... I've heard so many stories about the conviction, convictions ruining people's careers, prospects, um, social ruin. Um, did it affect your life and career at all? Not in the least. I mean, it was 50 years ago. Um, and I've... Once, once, I mean, the sentence never stopped, you know, with jobs and work and everything else and prospects and promotions. Um... I've led a very fascinating life. I've done things I never thought achievable um, in my lifetime. And I'm still discovering new things. So basically, no, it didn't change one jot. Which is wonderful to hear, Philip. But is this because... So I've heard stories of people's names and address being printed in the local paper and this kind of thing. Did you manage to get your conviction under the radar for your employers, subsequent employers, not to hear, not to find out about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, um, I lied on my first application for the post office because it was part of the Crown property and it was also official secret tax. Um, I mean, luckily, I got through the interviews and everything else. Um, as a result, for the twenty-two years I actually worked for them, um, I reached managerial level, and. My achievements whilst I was there were astounding um, due to my, my hard work and my dedication to the work I was doing. Fantastic to hear it. So I'm going to bring things, I'm going to open things up to our panel now and then bring in Sasha. But just before I do, do you think, Philip, that a pardon would be of any relevance 
to you or do you want more or what's your feelings on the idea of reparations? Well, no, because I mean, gross indecency is still a criminal offence. I broke the law. Um, okay, well, so be it. You know, that was the only place you could find men in those days. Um, the consequent, you know, you, you know, you trawled around the local cottages uh, looking for what you wanted. Um, well, basically, you know, it was gross indecency, you know, sex in a public place, and that's still on the statute books. So, I mean, I broke the law. Actually, I think gross indecency has now been, um, it's now off the statute book since 2003, but I've, I know what you mean. The the crime of having sex in a public toilet is still against the law. Um, yeah. Right, fantastic. Thank you very much for that. So, Sophie, how, we've just been talking about Mishti's story all these years later. Yeah. How do you feel when you hear a story like Philip's? Uh, well, um, yeah, and we're obviously still um, having the discussion about conversion therapies uh, around the world etc but um well it's awful and i'm uh, just to say to philip i'm 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 so sorry but it does sound like you've you you as you say you've had a very wonderful rich life i'm so happy to hear that um and only i think really the victims of um miscarriages of justice can say themselves whether or not they are uh think that the apologies and are are reparation enough but I'm, I'm. So I'm not quite sure if now, if a straight couple were found having sex in a toilet, they wouldn't have been. Yeah, I'm not sure yes. about that actually. I'm not sure about that. Um, but Mishti, so his, so we're talking about a case from history that does have some parallels with yours in terms of familial rejection. Um, how do you feel when you hear that, and how do you think we, as a society, all these years later? however many years it is after 1972, nearly 50, how many, how do you think we should go about um, making amends? Um, I think it's sad that, you know, we're still having to deal with these things, but it's also quite reassuring to hear stories um, like Philip's where, you know, you're still enjoying yourself and you're still proud of who you are. Fantastic. And do you think, if, if do you think we should be giving them a pardon or should the government be apologising? I think that the problem with a pardon, um, and maybe I'm being too technical with this, but it does kind of give credence to the idea that that should ever have been considered a crime. And an apology, I think, would be far more to the point. That was a mistake that was made and should be rectified. Okay, I should point out here that in Scotland, the, the government has given an apology rather than a pardon. Right, at this point, I want to bring in our fantastic LGBTQ plus historian, Sasha Coward. He's worked at various local, national and international museums and galleries, too many to mention, and we love him. Sasha, how do you feel when you hear Philip's story because it's, it'll sound extraordinary to lots of our listeners but as you will know it's actually quite common amongst gay men of a certain age. When, when I hear Philip's story I have to admit like it, it chills my, my blood um, and, and that may be surprising because you know hearing Philip talk about it you are such a, a proud man you've moved on your life has moved on your, your life is more than that right you've, you've made so much more of your life and you're not a victim like that's not how you see your life or your story but at the same time a 17 year old undergoing electroshock therapy because they were seeking to have a romantic relationship pretty much in the only space that they could find those kind of relationships you know gay men weren't seeking 
to have sex in bathrooms because that was just a kink or just because that's what they wanted to do. It was kind of, and Philip, you might want to jump in and talk about this from experience, but it was kind of out of necessity. Like this was a place where you could meet people. Um, and so in that sense, I, you know, maybe Philip doesn't feel that there's a need for a, an apology or a pardon. And I completely understand that because to be honest, you've lived through it and you've gone out the other side. From my perspective, I agree with what was just said, that a pardon implies you messed up. It's like the government is forgiving you, but forgiving you for what? And that's the question. It is about semantics, but it is more than that, you know. This has affected a lot of people. So we're talking 49,000 men who have been pardoned posthumously. That means after they died. So this doesn't include those people like Philip who can tell their story to us today. These are gay and bisexual men who died and they have been pardoned. So this is a huge thing. Um, Sasha, before we go back to Philip, can I just quickly ask you, what does this Alan Turing law, what does it actually mean practically? Does someone have to apply for a pardon or you know so all these people got them posthumously so did families have to apply because um some of the crimes still as as philip pointed out some of them still stand so, and as i understand it there's not been a blanket pardon no there isn't a blanket pardon so for many people you are still required to write in and request your pardon there have been certain cases like these posthumous cases some of them have been dismissed automatically if they're at a certain type of prosecution but for many of them it requires you to write a letter in to get your your apology which again which is another level of many people uh, who have either moved on beyond it or who are embarrassed about it. It's a time in their past that was humiliating. Getting them to write a letter doesn't just doesn't seem good enough. Um, okay, so let's come back to Philip. So, Philip, I know that you've said that your life wasn't massively affected by um, what happened. But if you think about um, other people, other gay men you knew, um, and some of the stories we've all heard. What I mean, we talked about pardons, we've talked about apologies. What about financial compensation for loss of potential earnings, for example, for all those who lost their jobs or were unemployable because they had criminal records? Do you think that any of these um, have any relevance? It depends what the, what the offence they committed was. Um, Clearly, I mean, I broke the law. I mean, I, I knew that uh, with being gross indecency, uh, being caught in a public place. Um, and I don't see you can have reparation financially or otherwise because you were caught doing something wrong that was illegal. Except, um, except, as Sasha was just saying, um, and you know more about this than us, obviously, if the only way to meet other men in those days was to break the law because we weren't accepted anywhere else, um, were you break? Does that constitute breaking the law in the same sense? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I was very aware of the risks I was taking, even at that age. Um, I'm surprised I'm still here, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was quite hardened to the fact, you know, Toilets sort are of the places to be um, when you're on a quest for sex. Um, <laughs> consequently, it was a driving force what I needed, what I wanted. Um, and I do feel, I mean, the guy I was resident was a 55 year old married man. Um, I do wonder how he survived it. 
Did you, so did you not hear whether, yeah, I mean, so if he got, so he presumably got a conviction as well. Did yeah. you, did you not hear what um, happened to him? I mean, whether his marriage survived or he lost his job or? No idea. I mean, I, I mean he was in court with me at the same time. Um, I just found out, you know, this 55 year old guy that was a married family man. Um, whereas I was a single person. I had no attachments. I had my own bestest. I'd left home. I was virtually unknown where I was. So I didn't have that impact of the shame. I was explained to family and friends, you dum, you dum, you dum. Um, so I was quite lucky and fortunate in that position to be in that position whereby I wasn't really affected. Okay, fantastic. Right, so I'd like to ask Sophie, if we think about other famous incidences of historical injustice and don't worry I'm not going to put you on the spot I'd ask you for any but I'm thinking of things like in with apartheid after apartheid in South Africa there was the whole truth and reconciliation committee to redress historical wrongs you know and I'm just wondering whether as a society do we need to treat the wound for society as a whole to heal mm. is that do you know what I mean is there something that we collectively have to do in order to purge that um negativity and do you know what i mean well it, yeah because it seems to me that the whether it's pardon or an apology or um whatever it is that's being suggested or is has indeed been made law that it's really about society now saying that was a law but it was wrong and uh it, we that's that's why so i know the phillips love <laughs> wonderfully not interested in saying that you know he 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 was a victim of of a miscarriage of justice he he's saying exactly um that he felt that you know he broke the law and and that was what happened then but as as we know i think uh, those sorts of um, prosecutions and those sorts of psychiatric treatments um were applied to people in all kinds of situations that 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 those laws that were being broken weren't just about um you know cottaging or public indecency um that there, there were there were it was just it was the crime of having a relationship with another man so um and that's that had been going on for a long time however brief that relationship however <laughs> brief um so yeah so i think there is this idea that we that we want to move on and so uh, i mean I, I analogies are, are are difficult, aren't they? So I don't think we can say if, if it was apartheid or if it was I know. that. I think that that but, can muddle the argument a bit. You know, but I was also thinking about any twelve-step program. They always have this idea of making amends before you can move on. Mm. You've got to make amends. Yeah. So I think there is a sense of that, and what's appropriate and what's and and what's not appropriate. I think has to be, you know, the the the, the families of or the people um, who who are still. Um, uh, with us can can do, negotiate that the best I think. Okay, very quickly, Mishti, do you agree? Um, you know, I I do definitely agree. Um, I think that particularly what you were saying about the, the problem is in again analogies with comparing it to a twelve step program. Um, that's these are steps. These are um, building blocks towards something more. But I think the problem is that because it's such a deeply rooted problem within society, and there's that very British um, unwillingness to actually address things candidly, this needs to be an ongoing process. It can't be one single bill that's passed and then you know, well, we've done our bit. We've we've pardoned them. What more could they want from mm. us? This needs to be an attitude that's taken forward. And unfortunately, with the current state of you know LGBT rights and. And um, the 
kind of prevalence of um, TERFs particularly um, in British media. That is, just for anybody who doesn't know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a, a, a lot further that we need to be going. So I asked on social media whether our listeners think pardons are enough. Here are some of their comments. Teresa on Instagram says, my problem with a pardon, it suggests they did something wrong in the first place and they are being let off, as our panellists have made this point. How about posthumously disgracing or criminalising the system or individuals who persecuted them? Alan Turing shouldn't be pardoned, he should be celebrated and honoured. Stephen on Facebook, surely their records should be completely wiped and some kind of a public apology made, not just pardons, and the records maintained. KM on Instagram, pardon is legal language and needs to be used. It legally absolves the individual of guilt. I agree it's not helpful language as it doesn't take into account the sensitivities here, but it's legally correct. And then finally, Aaron on Facebook says... One point that came up in this discussion against a blanket pardon was that some of these offences would still be offences today, as Philip has mentioned, which I thought, says Aaron, provided helpful context at the time. I don't know whether a blanket pardon went through or not, but it's an important piece of legislation all the same. Okay, we do know a blanket pardon didn't go through. Sasha, can you tell us... um, Many people have criticised these this Alan Turing law because it doesn't give a, a blanket pardon. Can you tell us um, this whole thing about crimes that are still considered illegal? Um, can you just explain how the law works in this regard? Well, it's a complicated one because, as Philip was talking, there are, you know there are certain things, you know, which which were put under some laws which may not exist today or may exist in some form today yeah so for example whatever your sexual gender identity um having sex in a public space is not going to be something that is going to be accepted but then you've got the added layer of the fact that the reason police officers were going into men's toilets to look for people to arrest, right? It wasn't just because they were trying to do due diligence. It was because they were trying to find a way to persecute uh, gay and bisexual men. You know, someone else earlier said if there were a straight couple or, you know, a bisexual couple where you had a man and a woman, would the same thing happen? I can guarantee you, no, it would not. You know, I'm sure they'd get a stern telling off and be told to leave the lavatories but it wouldn't be the same situation and this is the complexity um that even though it was about gross indecency many of these cases the reason that these were put into place was because there was no law at the time there were were in the past that said it is illegal to be gay we will arrest you for that so they used the gross indecency law as a way to do that anyway So you have a you do have a very messy situation um and obviously there are some things which happened in the past which should not be forgiven or pardoned you have to go through with a tooth comb you have to be careful of what you choose to 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 wipe off i still would argue that a pardon isn't good enough Okay, brilliant. Right, I'm going to come back to Philip in a minute. I just want to move the conversation on a bit so we can be a bit more inclusive and talk about the situation with lesbian sexual activity in the past. So, Sophie, as our <laughs> lesbian on the panel, um, as we know, um, lesbian sex was never actually illegal because it wasn't officially recognised. This obviously um, 
meant that lesbians evaded prosecution, but avoided prosecution, I should say. But this brings about challenges of its own, lesbian erasure. Um, what are your thoughts about this? And is this is this was such a silent problem? Is there e the oppression lesbians faced? Is there even more of a danger of the people who lived through this being forgotten? Their stories just not even being known. Mm, that's an interesting point, and. Uh, you know, women traditionally um, are, are, have been given psychiatric treatment um, when they misbehave according to the rules of society. So, um, you know, locked up um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, Sent so to I, lunatic asylums well, quite. as hysterics. So I imagine that those sorts of things would have been happening in families privately, but they wouldn't have been in the public domain in, in the same way, obviously, because they weren't in the legal statute. Um, but so I so I honestly don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. But I imagine yes that there were quite certain, obviously erasure, but but certainly that there were people uh, women who were given psychiatric treatment um, for being gay. It's interesting though, isn't it, that we're sitting around mm. so-called experts on gayness yeah. and lesbianism, yeah. and we don't even know. This is how much our history has been denied to us, yeah. actually. Yeah. And I do think lesbian erasure has, you know, the fact that it wasn't a crime in some ways, you know, great, but um, in in terms of a criminal conviction, but um, it has led to these stories being forgotten. Mishti, do you feel, as the youngest person in this discussion, <laughs> um, do you think there can be a disconnect between certain older and younger members, members of our community and um, a lack of knowledge of queer history? And if so, how do you think we can address this um i definitely do think there has been i think particularly following it's a sin um one thing that i noticed on social media was people romanticizing this idea of a lost generation but actually there are plenty of queer elders to go and have a chat to still people who you know if you build that relationship you are able to talk to um and learn from i interviewed a few for a piece that i did on on the show and like I said, I learned a lot even in that brief interaction. Um, and I think the, the there is a trap that some people can fall into of going, you know, kind of woe is us. But it's all about, I think, also us ourselves putting the effort in. Um, and I think also making sure that queer elders are in the public eye. Um, there is a, a stereotype possibly, um, but maybe one that holds a grain of truth within it. Um, the idea that within the queer community you have like an expiry date when you once you turn 30 and then you're no longer palatable. Oh, well, I'm well expired then. <laughs> <in that case>. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one you that I've heard. <laughs> the truth of it, I'm not sure. <laughs> Right, so you mentioned so you mentioned queer elders. I love this concept. We've got a queer elder in the conversation in the shape of the brilliant Philip. Do you think, as a queer elder, knowing this public eye that we're putting you into, are some younger people guilty of just wanting to move on from the persecutions of the past, enjoy the freedoms of the present, and not pay any attention to our shared history as a community? I think they've all, I think they think everybody's all too good now. Um, they have no concepts of the strife and struggle we went through back in the sixties and seventies um, to get where we are now. Um, I mean, we were pioneers back then. Uh, we'd see uh, CHE and GLF fighting for our rights and our identity, and I don't think enough is made of that our history the strife we went through to get where we are now. And it's all taken for granted. Okay. 
Okay, so absolutely one person who's agreeing you because he's nodding very vociferously is Sasha. As a historian, what can we do to? Um, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because we're the only minority community who don't usually have parents who are members of the same community who can pass down any kind of sense of shared cultural history. Um, you know, Mishti's brought up the concept of queer elders. I love that. How can we elevate them to a position of, you know, what can we do to, to draw on their stories so we don't forget them and we give them the honour them as they should be honoured? I think for me, I'm just a huge advocate for queer history, for, you know, going back and doing your reading and doing your research and doing your understanding and also talking to people uh, because, you know, queer old elders, older queer people, they, they are there to talk to. They may not be in, in the nightclub that you're going to, but you need to go and seek them out because we do stand on the, sh the shoulders of giants. We would not be having this conversation. There would not be a radio show where we could sit and, you know, chit chat about, you know, queer pardons, pardoning gay men and bisexual men. That wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the people that came before us. And I think it's a two way street. I think there is a really upsetting disconnect between queer younger people and queer elders, um, where there is, a, there is a lack of information, a lack of communication, where the younger queer audiences can be guilty of thinking, like, we, 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 know, we know what we're doing, that's in the past, we're beyond that now, we don't need to worry about it. And then I imagine that there's also an issue with a number of older people who are feeling, well, disconnected from this queer youth not not able to talk to them all right all right so a couple of things that have been suggested um or that i've seen suggested in the press or on social media is the need for a national queer museum or some kind of monument to um the pioneers from the past um what do you think of either i mean we're talking about how important it is to talk and pass on stories how important is it do you think for some kind of official recognition in that so shape I think you're, you're talking about the Queer Britain Museum, which is a kind of proposal to build a, a brick and mortar museum for queerness. What do you think uh, about that? Do we need that? I, I think if it was, firstly, it needs to be built very carefully. It is such a complex issue, but in theory, you know, it could be incredible. It could be a really amazing resource for all ages. But I guess for me, it also, it could let some museums and places get off scot-free because every single museum is a queer museum. The British Museum is a queer museum. The Natural History Museum is a queer museum. You know, by making one space, you can almost let other museums off by saying, oh, well, we don't need to do it because it's in the queer museum. And you end up ghettoizing queer history. Naturally, it's just a chapter in history. So I don't fall down one side or the other. I think it could be incredible, but I also think, you know, that doesn't let off any single museum. You're brilliant. Sophie, what do you think of what Sasha was just well, saying? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's an interesting discussion, isn't it, about ghettoizing and, uh, you know, when we think now about having certain spaces and dedicating things to... I mean, I, I don't see... I, I, if it was... It shouldn't do that, obviously. It should still be that the other museums and, and, and other spaces still have to include queer history and, and queer stories. And um, But I, 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 I like the idea of having a museum. 
What about you, Mishti? Do you like the idea of having what some kind of national monument? You know, um, you know, we've got monuments to people who died in the war and monuments to there's a monument on um, Park Lane to animals that died in the war, and uh, you know, very important. I know, I know, and I do like that monument with the horses. (laughs) But if we're going to honour horses that died in the war or wars, I can't remember. Do you think um, should we have some kind of monument to? Gay people who literally um, lost everything and often their lives or took their own lives. Um, what do you think? Would that serve as a reminder? I think that we that we do need one, but my immediate concern, and I keep harping on about this, but it's because I think it's very important. Um, my concern would be who's actually involved in building those spaces and making sure that those spaces are accessible and are diverse. Um, I mean, recently there was the scandal around even Stonewall um, with you know workers, sorry, volunteers of colour um, facing a lot of racism within the institution. And if that's what we're seeing in one of the biggest, you know, um, um, LGBTQ rights act um, charities in the UK then how can we ensure that if such um, a project was to go forward we wouldn't see those same things and one of the things that I love at the moment with the internet is that there's a lot of grassroots efforts um, which I think have been a lot more successful in ensuring diversity I mean Jason Okandai has started the Black and Gay Back in the Day project, basically oh, archiving. It. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and I know there's another similar one for South Asian queer history in the UK um, run by two academics whose names I cannot for the life of me remember. But I, when people are given those spaces to do that, they do it very, very well. And I'm just concerned about whether or not that would continue in such a space. Okay, fantastic. So we brought up lots of points. I want to end by going back to our queer elder, Philip. Actually, go on, Philip. Are you you're holding up your finger? Is there something you want to say before I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, I belong to Aging Me Pride group, and I've already done an interview about growing up in the 60s and 70s. There's now archived in Manchester uh, Library. Fantastic. Right. So, Philip, can I just... Bringing us back to the central topic we were discussing, can I read out a comment from a listener we've had, Tom on Twitter? He says, A pardon is tantamount to forgiving someone for a valid crime. The only one who could be pardoned in this situation is the UK government, and I am not ready to offer that pardon yet. Do you pardon the UK government, or forgive the UK government that of the time that um, convicted you and branded you a criminal? Absolutely not. No, I was doing what I was doing, um, despite you know knowing the law and everything else. I have no option, and not wanting to refuse who I was and my, my true identity. Um, no, no, no way at all. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your story. You're very welcome. Thank you very much to Sasha for being brilliant as ever. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. And now, just to end with some light relief, I would love to talk about Strictly because this week it was announced that celebrity baker John Waite, love him, is joining the next series of Strictly Come Dancing later this year. He's set to compete in the first all-male partnership. So, how do we feel about this? Sophie, are you a fan of Strictly? I'm obsessed with Strictly. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, and, yeah, no, I'll be re- I'm will be. i really looking forward to the next series. So, uh, 
I, I will follow all those. I've been they, they've been releasing quite slowly, haven't they? Who's on it? So um, yeah. Very do exciting. you do you have a preference for who you'd like? They've said he's going to be in a same sex pairing. Do you have a preference for who you'd like to see him dancing with? Oh uh, no, I didn't. I, I no, I don't. No, I don't actually know people that well. I don't think I would know who to. Well, yeah. should I tell you who I want yes. him to be dancing with? I slightly one worry sometimes that they're kind of de-sex these partnerships, and um, I'd love him to be dancing with the other gay, the gay professional, Johannes Radibe, I think is his name. Right. He's black South African, and he's done... He's um, wonderful. He's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would go even further mm -hmm. if there were two gay men and they were doing some kind of sexy clinch or romantic or passionate. Mm. Um, um, what do you think? Mishti, are you a fan of Strictly or is it for old people? Like I'm, re me and I'm really going to disappoint you. I've never watched Strictly before <laughs> in my life and I don't know who that baker is. <laughs> oh no! So is this for people past our, cell, what, our expiry no, days? <laughs> My kids do not watch Strictly. Oh, do they not? No. No. I, I can't say I've ever known what's going on. All right. So quite seriously then, we've talked about um, representation in the mainstream media. We were talking about the narrative arts. Russell made a point, Russell T. Davis made a point about the soaps having massive penetration amongst society and um, they have a real power. The same is true of Strictly. I'm pretty sure it's the most watched certainly entertainment programme or has been for a few years. Um, all right, we can talk about this as a bit of light relief, but surely there's real power there and real capacity to bring about change. Oh, no, no. yeah, no, I, I, do, I do agree. Um, but I also, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I also wonder how viewing patterns are changing, um, both when it comes to soaps and things like Strictly Old, people willing to tune in every week or every day because, you know, now when you can binge watch things, why wouldn't you? I like to be able to do things at my <laughs> um, at my own ease. Well, the, view, the way they calculate ratings now tends to include, tends to allow for catch up and um, they give you the overnight figures for people who watched it and then they give you the what's called the consolidated figures. So I think when it's called the, um, sorry, I suddenly realised I might be patronising you here, but when it's called the highest rated, I think that includes that, even if people do binge watch. So it could still have um, a big impact on attitudes, do you think? Um, but would they not still have to wait a week before they were able to watch that next episode, even if it was on catch-up? Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. right. I don't know whether or not people now in this era of TikTok and Instagram reels would have the attention span or focus to wait a week for things to happen. Well, I don't watch TikTok. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have the attention span to watch it, usually the old-fashioned way when it goes out, but sometimes I catch up on it a day or two afterwards, actually. There's quite a lot of Twitter stuff on when it goes out as an yes. episode. It's one of those sort of live twi Twitter events, isn't it? So that's quite fun. I mean, obviously for ancient people. <laughs> like us. <No. laughs> Did you watch, Sophie? Did you watch um, Nicola Adams was yes. the first... I absolutely Fabulous. loved it yeah. and i was so gutted I know. when did it was it catchy who got covid or something and they had to pull out yes there was an injury or an illness yeah. i can't remember which but yes they had to pull out quite quite early on but yeah that was so great i mean it was she's so fabulous brilliant. anyway yeah it was so brilliant and in terms of representation and a woman of color a lesbian of color dancing with um, a professional partner 
I thought it was a real moment, actually. Yeah, I did too. It was a big, and it was a big shift. I mean, I think that they've come a long way on that show because they definitely wouldn't have thought about that ten years ago. Well, and also, can I just say about this show? Um, now, I don't know whether Mishti is going to be we're able to... We're trying to convert you here. I know, we're trying to convert you. But one thing I find interesting about it, ballroom dancing and the tradition of it, you've got very traditional, rigid gender roles. The man leads and directs the woman around. The woman's a bit more decorative and pretty and passive. And um, it's very binary. And they often say with um, same-sex couples, oh, it's difficult because who's going to be the leader? And... When you start thinking about this, it gets us quite close to the kind of who's the man and who's mm, the woman thing mm, that we often get asked mm. in queer relationships. I'm surprised that the tradition of ballroom dancing as an art form hasn't been under, hasn't been put under any pressure to kind of loosen its rigidity on the binary a bit. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think they do that. I mean, and I think they have been doing some dances on uh, on Strictly where they've been doing. Um, same-sex dancing en masse. I think yes, they've in done, the group numbers. In the group numbers, yeah. And I think um, they're definitely pushing those boundaries. I, I mean, I, and I think there is a strong tradition of, uh, of straight same-sex couples dancing yes. together. Yes. I think there... So, uh, but yes, obviously, the, the moves themselves in a lot of formal dancing are very um, gender stereotyped, yeah. And it can be yeah, and it can be quite difficult, as I understand, from the point of view of scoring. You know, when it comes to the technicalities of right, the moves, right? Um, well, that is—I mean—that is something we can learn and develop, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's what part what they're doing. Do you think, Mishti, that is does any of the is any of this what's partly put you off the fact that it is so kind of old-fashioned gender roles in ballroom dancing? Um. I don't think so. I think it's just that my family had a very... We had shows that we liked watching every now and then. And um, for us, those were Bake Off and The Apprentice. Oh, really? And we all sat down for those. But beyond those two seasons... All right, so here's a question for you. Do you think... Um, was it a Bengali woman who won Bake Off? Yeah, Nadia Hussain. Yes, I've forgotten her name, sorry. Do you think the fact that... Um, so you're talking about seeing yourself represented. I'm trying to make a point about Strictly now, um, doing a good thing with John Waite and his same-sex partner. Do you think being in a Bengali family and seeing a woman not only compete but win and being widely celebrated for it, did that um, have a big impact on you and your family? Um... I think it was nice to see somebody winning, but I don't think it had that big an impact, probably because of the way that my mum raised me. Um, I mean, she went to university at a time when most, you know, most Bengali girls, um, people her age, people that she went to school with were getting married off at like 18, 19. And then she was doing, you know, her, her bachelor's, she did her master's. She was even going to do her PhD until she went, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to maybe it's time for me to settle into my expect people the expectations that people have of me. Sorry, um, and I think growing up around a strong female figure for me has more of an impact than anything else, and I think that's probably something that would ring true for other people. Yes, it was nice to see that somebody um, in a hijab was being you know held as uh, not an English rose, but <laughs> something similar, a British treasure. Yeah, a national treasure, a national yeah. treasure yeah. yeah. But I also question how much of that was about, you know, being palatable. She's she's lovely, yes she is, um, but you know, baking cakes mm, and mm. talking a certain way and... Oh, well it's exactly what we were saying before yeah. about um, stereotypes and being a respectable, palatable 
gay for mainstream society. But let's try and be positive <laughs> about strictly. <laughs> so, Sophie, as a fan of the show, so we've heard Misty talking about how she was almost spoiled in a way by having a strong mother mm. in her family. So some young gay or lesbian kid who doesn't have um, queer-friendly parents... Mm. And watches Strictly and sees John Waite dancing, hopefully with Johannes. <laughs> do you think that will that could potentially have a big impact on that child? Yeah, have a big impact on the child, but and also on the wider community about you know the way that um, changing hearts and minds. I mean, you know, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Fantastic! That's a brilliant point to end at. Let's hope he wins. Good luck <laughs> to John Waite. That is about it for this week's show. Thank you to thank you so much to all my guests: Sophie Ward, Mishti Ali, Russell T Davis, Philip Harpadikin, and Sasha Coward. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. We're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Kane Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. See you at the same time next Sunday.